When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Chapter 44 of Far From the Madding Crowd this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyke Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter forty four. Under a tree. Reaction. Bathsheba went along the dark road, neither knowing nor caring about the direction or issue of her flight. The first time that she definitely noticed her position was when she reached a gate leading into a thicket, overhung by some large oak and beech trees. On looking into the place it occurred to her that she had seen it by daylight on some previous occasion, and that what appeared like an impassable thicket was in reality a break of fern, now withering fast. She could think of nothing better to do with her palpitating self than to go in there and hide and entering she lighted on a spot sheltered from the damp fog by a reclining trunk where she sank down upon a tangled couch of fronds and stems she mechanically pulled some armfuls round her to keep off the breezes and closed her eyes whether she slept or not that night bathsheba was not clearly aware but it was with a freshened existence and a cooler brain that a long time afterwards she became conscious of some interesting proceedings which were going on in the trees above her head and around. A coarse-throated chatter was the first sound. It was a sparrow, just waking. Next, chee-wee-wee-wee-wee's from another retreat. It was a finch. Third, tink-tink-tink-tink-a-chink from the hedge. It was a robin. Chuck, 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 overhead, a squirrel. Then, from the road, with my rat-ta-ta and my rum-tum-tum. It was a ploughboy. Presently he came opposite, and she believed from his voice that he was one of the boys on her own farm. He was followed by a shambling tramp of heavy feet, and looking through the ferns, Bathsheba could just discern in the wan light of daybreak a team of her own horses. They stopped to drink at a pond on the other side of the way. She watched them flouncing into the pool, drinking, tossing up their heads, drinking again, the water dribbling from their lips in silver threads. There was another flounce, and they came out of the pond and turned back again towards the farm. She looked further around. 
Day was just dawning, and beside its cool air and colours her heated actions and resolves of the night stood out in a lurid contrast. She perceived that in her lap and clinging to her hair were red and yellow leaves which had come down from the tree and settled silently upon her during her partial sleep. Bathsheba shook her dress to get rid of them, when multitudes of the same family, lying around about her, rose and fluttered away in the breeze thus created, like ghosts from an enchanter fleeing. There was an opening towards the east, and the glow from the as yet unrisen sun attracted her eyes thither. From her feet, and between the beautiful yellowing ferns with their feathery arms, the ground sloped downwards to a hollow, in which was a species of swamp dotted with fungi. A morning mist hung over it now, a fulsome yet magnificent silvery veil, full of light from the sun, yet semi-opaque, the hedge behind it being in some measure hidden by its hazy luminousness. Up the sides of this depression grew sheaves of the common rush, and here and there a peculiar species of flag, the blades of which glistened in the emerging sun like scythes. But the general aspect of the swamp was malignant. From its moist and poisonous coat seemed to be exhaled the essences of evil things in the earth, and in the waters under the earth. The fungi grew in all manner of positions from rotting leaves and tree-stumps, some exhibiting to her listless gaze their clammy tops, others oozing gills. Some were marked with great splotches, red as arterial blood. Others were saffron-yellow, and others tall and attenuated, with stems like macaroni. Some were leathery and of richest browns. The hollow seemed a nursery of pestilence, small and great, in the immediate neighbourhood of comfort and health, and Bathsheba arose with a tremor at the thought of having passed the night on the brink of so dismal a place. There were now other footsteps to be heard along the road. Bathsheba's nerves were still unstrung. She crouched down out of sight again, and the pedestrian came into view. He was a schoolboy with a bag slung over his shoulder containing his dinner, and a book in his hand. He paused by the gate, and, without looking up, continued murmuring words in tones quite loud enough to reach her ears. "'O oh Lord, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, O oh Lord! That I know's out a book. Give us, give us, give us, give us, give us! That I know. Grace that, grace that, grace that, grace that! That I know!' Other words followed to the same effect. The boy was of the dunce class, apparently. The book was a psalter, and this was his way of learning the collect. In the worst attacks of trouble there appears to be always a superficial film of consciousness which is left disengaged and open to the notice of trifles, and Bathsheba was faintly amused at the boy's method, till he too passed on. By this time stupor had given place to anxiety, and anxiety began to make room for hunger and thirst. A form now appeared on the rise on the other side of the swamp, half hidden by the mist, and came towards Bathsheba. The woman, for it was a woman, approached with her face askance, as if looking earnestly on all sides of her. When she got a little further round to the left, and drew nearer, Bathsheba could see the newcomer's profile against the sunny sky and knew the wavy sweep from forehead to chin, with neither angle nor decisive line anywhere about it, to be the familiar contour of Lily Smallbury. Bathsheba's heart bounded with gratitude at the thought that she was not altogether deserted, and she jumped up. "'Oh, Liddy!' she said, 
or attempted to say, but the words had only been framed by her lips. There came no sound. She had lost her voice by exposure to the clogged atmosphere all these hours of night. "'Oh, ma'am, I'm so glad I have found you,' said the girl, as soon as she saw Bathsheba. "'You can't come across,' Bathsheba said in a whisper, which she vainly endeavoured to make loud enough to reach Liddy's ears. Liddy, not knowing this, stepped down upon the swamp, saying as she did so, "'It will bear me up, I think.' Bathsheba never forgot that transient little picture of Liddy crossing the swamp to her there in the morning light. Iridescent bubbles of dank subterranean breath rose from the sweating sod beside the waiting-maid's feet as she trod, hissing as they burst and expanded away to join the vapoury firmament above. Liddy did not sink as Bathsheba had anticipated. She landed safely on the other side, and looked up at the beautiful, though pale and weary face of her young mistress. "'Poor thing,' said Liddy, with tears in her eyes. "'Do hearten yourself up a little, ma'am. However did—' "'I can't speak above a whisper. My voice is gone for the present,' said Bathsheba, hurriedly. "'I suppose the damp air from that hollow has taken it away. Liddy, don't question me, mind. Who sent you? Anybody?' "'Nobody. I thought when I found you were not at home that something cruel had happened. I fancy I heard his voice late last night, and so, knowing something was wrong—' "'Is he at home?' "'No. He left just before I came out. "'Is Fanny taken away?' "'Not yet. She soon will be, at nine o'clock.' "'We won't go home at present, then. Suppose we walk about in this wood.' Liddy, without exactly understanding everything, or anything, in this episode, assented, and they walked together further among the trees. "'But you had better come in, ma'am, and have something to eat. You will die of a chill.' I shall not come indoors yet. Perhaps never. Shall I get you something to eat, and something else to put over your head besides that little shawl? If you will, Liddy. Liddy vanished, and at the end of twenty minutes returned with a cloak, hat, some slices of bread and butter, a teacup, and some hot tea in a little china jug. Is Fanny gone? said Bathsheba. No, said her companion, pouring out the tea. Bathsheba wrapped herself up and ate and drank sparingly. Her voice was then a little clearer, and trifling colour returned to her face. "'Now we'll walk about again,' she said. They wandered about the wood for nearly two hours, Bathsheba replying in monosyllables to Liddy's prattle, for her mind ran on one subject, and one only. She interrupted with, "'I wonder if Fanny is gone by this time?' "'I will go and see.' She came back with the information that the men were just taking away the corpse, that Bathsheba had been inquired for, that she had replied to the effect that her mistress was unwell and could not be seen. "'Then they think I am in my bedroom?' "'Yes.' Liddy then ventured to add, "'You said when I first found you that you might never go home again. You didn't mean it, ma'am.' "'No, I've altered my mind. It is only women with no pride in them who run away from their husbands.' There is one position worse than that of being found dead in your husband's house from his ill-usage, and that is, to be found alive through having gone away to the house of somebody else. I have thought about it all this morning, and have chosen my course. A runaway wife is an encumbrance to everybody, and a burden to herself, and a byword, all of which make up a heap of misery greater than any that comes by staying at home. 
though this may include the trifling items of insult, beating, and starvation. Liddy, if ever you marry—God forbid that you ever should—you'll find yourself in a fearful situation. But mind this, don't you flinch, stand your ground, and be cut to pieces. That's what I am going to do." "'Oh, mistress, don't talk so,' said Liddy, taking her hand. "'But I knew you had too much sense to bide away. May I ask what dreadful thing has happened between you and him?' "'You may ask, but I may not tell.' In about ten minutes they returned to the house by a circuitous route, entering at the rear. Bathsheba glided up the back stairs to a disused attic, and her companion followed. "'Liddy!' she said with a lighter heart, for youth and hope had begun to reassert themselves. "'You are to be my confidant, for the present. Somebody must be, and I choose you. Well, I shall take up my abode here for a while. Will you get a fire lighted, put down a piece of carpet, and help me make the place comfortable? Afterwards I want you and Marianne to bring up that little stump bedstead in the small room, and the bed belonging to it, and a table and some other things. What shall I do to pass the heavy time away?' Hemming handkerchiefs is a very good thing," said Liddy. "Oh no, no! I hate needlework. I always did. Knitting, and that too. You might finish your sampler, for only carnations and peacocks want filling in, and then it could be framed and glazed and hung beside your aunt's, ma'am. The samplers are out of date, horribly countrified. No, Liddy, I'll read. Bring up some books, not new ones. I haven't the heart to read anything new. Some of your uncle's old ones, ma'am? Yes, some of those we stowed away in boxes. A faint gleam of humour passed over her face as she said, Bring Beaumont and Fletcher's Maid's Tragedy, and The Morning Bride, and, let me see, Night Thoughts, and The Vanity of Human Wishes. And that story of the black man who murdered his wife Desdemona. It's a nice dismal one that would suit you excellent just now. Now, Liddy, you've been looking into my books without telling me, and I said you were not to. How do you know it would suit me? It wouldn't suit me at all. But if the others do— No, they don't, and I won't read dismal books. Why should I read dismal books, indeed? Bring me Love in a Village, and Maid of the Mill, and Dr. Syntax, and some volumes of The Spectator. All that day Bathsheba and Liddy lived in the attic, in a state of barricade, a precaution which proved to be needless as against Troy, for he did not appear in the neighbourhood or trouble them at all. Bathsheba sat at the window till sunset, sometimes attempting to read, at other times watching every movement outside without much purpose, and listening without much interest to every sound. The sun went down almost blood-red that night, and a livid cloud received its rays in the east. Up against this dark background the west front of the church tower the only part of the edifice visible from the farmhouse windows rose distinct and lustrous, the vane upon the summit bristling with rays. Hereabouts at six o'clock the young men of the village gathered, as was their custom, for a game of prisoner's base. The spot had been consecrated to this ancient diversion from time immemorial, the old stocks conveniently forming a base facing the boundary of the churchyard, in front of which the ground was trodden, hard and bare as a pavement, by the players. She could see the brown and black heads of the young lads darting about, right and left, their white shirt-sleeves gleaming in the sun, whilst occasionally a shout and a peal of hearty laughter varied the stillness of the evening air. 
They continued to play for a quarter of an hour or so, when the game concluded abruptly, and the players leapt over the wall and vanished round to the other side, behind a yew-tree, which was also half behind a beech, now spreading in one mass of golden foliage, on which the branches traced black lines. "'Why did the base players finish their game so suddenly?' Bathsheba inquired, the next time that Liddy entered the room. I think twas because two men came just then from Casterbridge and began putting up a grand carved tombstone," said Liddy. "The lads went to see whose it was. Do you know?" Bathsheba asked. "I don't," said Liddy. End of chapter forty-four. Chapter forty-five of Far from the Madding Crowd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tige Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter forty five. Troy's Romanticism. When Troy's wife had left the house at the previous midnight, his first act was to cover the dead from sight. This done, he ascended the stairs, and throwing himself down upon the bed, dressed as he was, he waited miserably for the morning. Fate had dealt grimly with him through the last four-and-twenty hours. His day had been spent in a way which varied very materially from his intentions regarding it. There was always an inertia to be overcome in striking out a new line of conduct, not more in ourselves, it seems, than in circumscribing events, which appear as if leagued together to allow no novelties in the way of amelioration. Twenty pounds having been secured from Bathsheba, he had managed to add to the sum every farthing he could muster on his own account, which had been seven pounds ten. With this money, twenty-seven pounds ten in all, he had hastily driven from the gate that morning to keep his appointment with Fanny Robin. On reaching Casterbridge, he left the horse and trap at an inn, and at five minutes before ten came back to the bridge at the lower end of the town, and sat himself upon the parapet. The clocks struck the hour, and no Fanny appeared. In fact, at that moment she was being robed in her grave clothes by two attendants at the Union poorhouse, the first and last tiring women the gentle creature had ever been honoured with. The quarter went, the half-hour. A rush of recollection came upon Troy as he waited. This was the second time she had broken a serious engagement with him. In anger he vowed it should be the last, and at eleven o'clock, when he had lingered and watched the stone of the bridge till he knew every lichen upon their face, and heard the chink of the ripples underneath till they oppressed him, he jumped from his seat, went to the inn for his gig, and in a bitter mood of indifference concerning the past, and recklessness about the future, drove on to Budmouth races. He reached the race-course at two o'clock and remained either there or in the town till nine. But Fanny's image, as it had appeared to him in the sombre shadows of that Saturday evening, returned to his mind, backed up by Bathsheba's reproaches. He vowed he would not bet, and he kept his vow, for on leaving the town at nine o'clock in the evening he had diminished his cash only to the extent of a few shillings. He trotted slowly homeward, and it was now that he was struck for the first time with the thought that Fanny had been really prevented by illness from keeping her promise. This time she could have made no mistake. He regretted that he had not remained in Casterbridge and made inquiries. Reaching home he quietly unharnessed the horse, and came indoors, as we have seen, to the fearful shock that awaited him. 
As soon as it grew light enough to distinguish objects, Troy arose from the coverlet of the bed, and in a mood of absolute indifference to Bathsheba's whereabouts, and almost oblivious of her existence, he stalked downstairs and left the house by the back door. His walk was towards the churchyard, entering which he searched around till he found a newly dug unoccupied grave, the grave dug the day before for Fanny. The position of this having been marked, he hastened on to Casterbridge, only pausing and musing for a while at the hill whereon he had last seen Fanny alive. Reaching the town, Troy descended into a side street, and entered a pair of gates surmounted by a board bearing the words, Leicester, Stone and Marble Mason. Within were lying about stones of all sizes and designs, inscribed as being sacred to the memory of unnamed persons, who had not yet died. Troy was so unlike himself now, in look, word, and deed, that the want of likeness was perceptible, even to his own consciousness. His method of engaging himself in the business of purchasing a tomb was that of an absolutely unpractised man. He could not bring himself to consider, calculate, or economize. He waywardly wished for something, and he set about obtaining it, like a child in a nursery. "'I want a good tomb,' he said to the man who stood in the little office within the yard. "'I want as good a one as you can give me for twenty-seven pounds.' It was all the money he possessed. "'That's some to include everything.' "'Everything. Cutting the name, carriage to Weatherbury, and erection. And I want it now, at once.' "'We could not get anything special work this week.' I must have it now. If you would like one of these in stock, it could be got ready immediately. Very well, said Troy impatiently. Let's see what you have. The best I have in stock is this one, said the stone-cutter, going into a shed. Here's a marble headstone, beautifully crocketed, with medallions beneath of typical subjects. Here's the footstone, after the same pattern, and here's the coping to enclose the grave. The polishing alone of this set cost me eleven pounds. The slabs are of the best kind, and I can warrant them to resist rain and frost for a hundred years without flying. And how much? Well, I could add the name, and put it up at Weatherbury for the sum you mention. Get it done to-day, and I'll pay the money now. The man agreed, and wondered at such a mood in a visitor who wore not a shred of mourning. Then Troy wrote the words which were to form the inscription settled the account, and went away. In the afternoon he came back again, and found that the lettering was almost done. He waited in the yard till the tomb was packed, and saw it placed in the cart and started on its way to Weatherbury, giving directions to the two men who were to accompany it to inquire of the sexton for the grave of the person named in the inscription. It was quite dark when Troy came out of Casterbridge. He carried rather a heavy basket upon his arm with which he strode moodily along the road, resting occasionally at bridges and gates, whereon he deposited his burden for a time. Midway on his journey he met, returning in the darkness, the men and the wagon which had conveyed the tomb. He merely inquired if the work was done, and, on being assured that it was, passed on again. Troy entered Weatherbury churchyard about ten o'clock, and went immediately to the corner where he had marked the vacant grave early in the morning. It was on the obscure side of the tower, screened to a great extent from the view of passers along the road, a spot which until lately had been abandoned to heaps of stones and bushes of alder, but now it was cleared and made orderly for interments, by reason of the rapid filling of the ground elsewhere. 
Here now stood the tomb, as the men had stated, snow-white and shapely in the gloom, consisting of a head and footstone, and enclosing border of marble-work uniting them. In the midst was mould, suitable for plants. Troy deposited his basket beside the tomb, and vanished for a few minutes. When he returned he carried a spade and a lantern, the light of which he directed for a few moments upon the marble whilst he read the inscription. He hung his lantern on the lowest bough of the yew-tree, and took from his basket flower-roots of several varieties. There were bundles of snowdrops, hyacinths, and crocus-bulbs, violets, and double daisies, which were to bloom in early spring, and of carnations, pinks, picotees, lilies of the valley, forget-me-not, summer farewell, meadow saffron, and others, for the later seasons of the year. Troy laid these out upon the grass, and with an impassive face set to work to plant them. The snowdrops were arranged in a line on the outside of the coping, the remainder within the enclosure of the grave. The crocuses and hyacinths were to grow in rows, some of the summer flowers he placed over her head and feet, the lilies and forget-me-nots over her heart. The remainder were dispersed in the spaces between these. Troy, in his prostration at this time, had no perception that in the futility of these romantic doings, dictated by a remorseful reaction from previous indifference, there was any element of absurdity. Deriving his idiosyncrasies from both sides of the channel, he showed at such junctures as the present the inelasticity of the Englishman, together with that blindness to the line where sentiment verges on mawkishness, characteristic of the French. It was a cloudy, muggy, and very dark night, and the rays from Troy's lantern spread into the two old yews with a strange illuminating power, flickering, as it seemed, up to the black ceiling of cloud above. He felt a large drop of rain upon the back of his hand, and presently one came and entered one of the holes of the lantern, whereupon the candle sputtered and went out. Troy was weary, and it being now not far from midnight, and the rain threatening to increase, he resolved to leave the finishing touches of his labour until the day should break. He groped along the wall and over the graves in the dark till he found himself round at the north side. Here he entered the porch, and, reclining upon the bench within, fell asleep. End of chapter 45「Chapter 46 of Far From the Madding Crowd this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter forty six. The Gargoyle. Its doings. The tower of Weatherbury Church was a square erection of fourteenth century date, having two stone gargoyles on each of the four faces of its parapet. Of these eight carved protuberances, only two at this time continued to serve the purpose of their erection, that of spouting water from the lead roof within. One mouth in each front had been closed by bygone churchwardens as superfluous, and two others were broken away and choked, a matter not of much consequence to the well-being of the tower, for the two mouths which still remained open and active were gaping enough to do all the work. It has been sometimes argued that there is no truer criterion of the vitality of any given art period than the power of the master spirits of that time in grotesque, and certainly in the instance of Gothic art there is no disputing the proposition. 
Weatherbury Tower was a somewhat early instance of the use of an ornamental parapet in parish as distinct from cathedral churches, and the gargoyles, which are the necessary correlatives of a parapet, were exceptionally prominent, of the boldest cut that the hand could shape, and of the most original design that a human brain could conceive. There was, so to speak, that symmetry in their distortion, which is less the characteristic of British than continental grotesques of the period. All the eight were different from each other. A beholder was convinced that nothing on earth could be more hideous than those he saw on the north side, until he went around to the south. Of the two on this latter face, only that at the southeastern corner concerns the story. It was too human to be called like a dragon, too impish to be like a man, too animal to be like a fiend, and not enough like a bird to be called a griffin. This horrible stone entity was fashioned as if covered with a wrinkled hide. It had short, erect ears, eyes starting from their sockets, and its fingers and hands were seizing the corners of its mouth, which they thus seemed to pull open to give free passage to the water it vomited. The lower row of teeth was quite washed away, though the upper still remained. Here and thus, jutting a couple of feet from the wall against which its feet rested as a support, the creature had for four hundred years laughed at the surrounding landscape, voicelessly in dry weather, and in wet, with a gurgling and snorting sound. Troy slept on in the porch, and the rain increased outside. Presently the gargoyle spat. In due time a small stream began to trickle through the seventy feet of aerial space between its mouth and the ground, which the water-drops smote like duck-shot in their accelerated velocity. The stream thickened in substance and increased in power, gradually spouting further and yet further from the side of the tower. When the rain fell in a steady and ceaseless torrent, the stream dashed downwards in volumes. We follow its course to the ground at this point of time. The end of the liquid parabola has come forward from the wall, has advanced over the plinth mouldings, over a heap of stones, over the marble border, into the midst of Fanny Robin's grave. The force of the stream had, until very lately, been received upon some loose stones spread thereabout, which had acted as a shield to the soil under the onset. These, during the summer months, had been cleared from the ground, and there was now nothing to resist the downfall but the bare earth. For several years the stream had not spouted so far from the tower as it was doing on this night, and such a contingency had been overlooked. Sometimes this obscure corner received no inhabitant for the space of two or three years, and then it was usually but a pauper, a poacher, or some sinner of undignified sins. The persistent torrent from the gargoyle's jaws directed all its vengeance into the grave. The rich, tawny mould was stirred into motion, and boiled like chocolate. The water accumulated and washed deeper down, and the roar of the pool thus formed spread into the night as the head and chief among other noises of the kind created by the deluging rain. The flowers so carefully planted by Fanny's repentant lover began to move and writhe in their bed. The winter violets turned slowly upside down and became a mere mat of mud. Soon the snowdrops and other bulbs danced in the boiling mass like ingredients in a cauldron. Plants of the tufted species were loosened, rose to the surface, and floated off. Troy did not awake from his comfortless sleep till it was broad day. Not having been in bed for two nights, his shoulders felt stiff, his feet tender, and his head heavy. He remembered his position, arose, shivered, took the spade, and again went out. 
The rain had quite ceased, and the sun was shining through the green, brown, and yellow leaves, now sparkling and varnished by the raindrops to the brightness of similar effects in the landscapes of Risedale and Hobema, and full of all those infinite beauties that arise from the union of water and colour with high lights. The air was rendered so transparent by the heavy fall of rain that the autumn hues of the middle distance were as rich as those near at hand, and the remote fields, intercepted by the angle of the tower, appeared in the same plain as the tower itself. He entered the gravel path which would take him behind the tower. The path, instead of being stony as it had been the night before, was browned over with a thin coating of mud. At one place in the path he saw a tuft of stringy roots, washed white and clean as a bundle of tendons. He picked it up. Surely it could not be one of the primroses he had planted. He saw a bulb, another, and another as he advanced. Beyond doubt they were crocuses. With a face of perplexed dismay, Troy turned the corner and then beheld the wreck the stream had made. The pool upon the grave had soaked away into the ground, and in its place was a hollow. The disturbed earth was washed over the grass and pathway in the guise of the brown mud he had already seen, and had spotted the marble tombstone with the same stains. Nearly all the flowers were washed clean out of the ground, and they lay roots upward on the spots whither they had been splashed by the stream. Troy's brow became heavily contracted. He set his teeth closely, and his compressed lips moved as those of one in great pain. This singular accident, by a strange confluence of emotions in him, was felt as the sharpest sting of all. Troy's face was very expressive and any observer who had seen him now would hardly have believed him to be a man who had laughed and sung and poured love-trifles into a woman's ear. To curse his miserable lot was at first his impulse, but even that lowest stage of rebellion needed an activity whose absence was necessarily antecedent to the existence of the morbid misery which wrung him. The sight, coming as it did, superimposed upon the other dark scenery of the previous days, formed a sort of climax to the whole panorama, and it was more than he could endure. Sanguine by nature, Troy had a power of eluding grief by simply adjourning it. He could put off the consideration of any particular spectre, till the matter had become old and softened by time. The planting of flowers on Fanny's grave had been perhaps but a species of illusion of the primary grief, and now it was as if his intention had been known and circumvented. Almost for the first time in his life, Troy, as he stood by this dismantled grave, wished himself another man. It is seldom that a person with much animal spirit does not feel that the fact of his life being his own is the one qualification which singles it out as a more hopeful life than that of others who may actually resemble him in every particular. Troy had felt, in his transient way, hundreds of times, that he could not envy other people their condition because the possession of that condition would have necessitated a different personality, when he desired no other than his own. He had not minded the peculiarities of his birth, the vicissitudes of his life, the meteor-like uncertainty of all that related to him, because these appertained to the hero of his story, without whom there would have been no story at all for him, and it seemed to be only in the nature of things that matters would right themselves at some proper date and wind up well. This very morning the illusion completed its disappearance, and, as it were, all of a sudden Troy hated himself. The suddenness was probably more apparent than real. 
A coral reef which just comes short of the ocean's surface is no more to the horizon than if it had never been begun, and the mere finishing stroke is what often appears to create an event which has long been potentially an accomplished thing. He stood and meditated, a miserable man. Whither should he go? He that is accursed, let him be accursed still, was a pitiless anathema written in this spoilated effort of his newborn solicitousness. A man who has spent his primal strength in journeying in one direction has not much spirit left for reversing his course. Troy had, since yesterday, faintly reversed his, but the merest opposition had disheartened him. To turn about would have been hard enough under the greatest providential encouragement, but to find that Providence, far from helping him into a new course, or showing any wish that he might adopt one, actually jeered his first trembling and critical attempt in that kind, was more than nature could bear. He slowly withdrew from the grave. He did not attempt to fill up the hole, replace the flowers, or do anything at all. He simply threw up his cards and forswore his game for that time and always. Going out of the churchyard silently and unobserved, none of the villagers having yet risen, he passed down some fields at the back, and emerged just as secretly upon the high road. Shortly afterwards he had gone from the village. Meanwhile Bathsheba remained a voluntary prisoner in the attic. The door was kept locked, except during the entries and exits of Liddy, for whom a bed had been arranged in a small adjoining room. The light of Troy's lantern in the churchyard was noticed about ten o'clock by the maid-servant, who casually glanced from the window in that direction whilst taking her supper, and she called Bathsheba's attention to it. They looked curiously at the phenomenon for a time, until Liddy was sent to bed. Bathsheba did not sleep very heavily that night. When her attendant was unconscious and softly breathing in the next room, the mistress of the house was still looking out of the window at the faint gleam spreading from among the trees, not in a steady shine, but blinking like a revolving coast-light, though this appearance failed to suggest to her that a person was passing and repassing in front of it. Bathsheba sat here till it began to rain, and the light vanished, when she withdrew to lie restlessly in her bed, and re-enact in a worn mind the lurid scene of yesternight. Almost before the first faint sign of dawn appeared, she arose again, and opened the window to obtain a full breathing of the new morning air. The panes being now wet with trembling tears left by the night rain, each one rounded with a pale lustre caught from primrose-hued slashes through a cloud low down in the awakening sky. From the trees came the sound of a steady dripping upon the drifted leaves underneath them, and from the direction of the church she could hear another noise, peculiar and not intermittent like the rest, the pearl of water falling into a pool. Liddy knocked at eight o'clock, and Bathsheba unlocked the door. "'What a heavy rain we had in the night, ma'am,' said Liddy, when her inquiries about breakfast had been made. "'Yes, very heavy. Did you hear the strange noise from the churchyard?' "'I heard one strange noise. I've been thinking it must have been the water from the tower-spouts.' "'Well, that's what the shepherd was saying, ma'am. He's now gone on to sea.' "'Oh, Gabriel has been here this morning.' "'Only just looked in in passing, quite in his old way, which I thought he had left off lately. But the tower-spouts used to spatter on the stones, and we were puzzled, for this was like the boiling of a pot.' Not being able to read, think, or work, Bathsheba asked Liddy to stay and breakfast with her. The tongue of the more childish woman still ran upon recent events. "'Are you going across to the church, ma'am?' she asked. "'Not that I know of,' 
said Bathsheba. "'I thought you might like to go and see where they have put Fanny. The trees hide the place from your window.' Bathsheba had all sorts of dreads about meeting her husband. "'Has Mr. Troy been in to-night?' she said. "'No, ma'am. I think he's gone to Budmouth.' Budmouth. The sound of the word carried with it a much diminished perspective of him and his deeds. There were thirteen miles' interval betwixt them now. She hated questioning Liddy about her husband's movements, and indeed had hitherto sedulously avoided doing so, but now all the house knew that there had been some dreadful disagreement between them, and it was futile to attempt disguise. Bathsheba had reached a stage at which people ceased to have any appreciative regard for public opinion. "'What makes you think he has gone there?' she said. "'Laban Tall saw him on the Budmouth Road this morning before breakfast.' Bathsheba was momentarily relieved of that wayward heaviness of the past twenty-four hours which had quenched the vitality of youth in her, without substituting the philosophy of maturer years, and she resolved to go out and walk a little way. So when breakfast was over she put on her bonnet and took a direction towards the church. It was nine o'clock, and the men having returned to work again from their first meal, she was not likely to meet any of them in the road. Knowing that Fanny had been laid in the reprobate's quarter of the graveyard, called in the parish behind church, which was invisible from the road, it was impossible to resist the impulse to enter and look upon a spot which, from nameless feelings, she had at the same time dreaded to see. She had been unable to overcome an impression that some connection existed between her rival and the light through the trees. Bathsheba skirted the buttress, and beheld the hole and the tomb, its delicately veined surface splashed and stained, just as Troy had seen it and left it two hours earlier. On the other side of the scene stood Gabriel. His eyes, too, were fixed on the tomb, and her arrival having been noiseless, she had not as yet attracted his attention. Bathsheba did not at once perceive that the grand tomb and the disturbed grave were Fanny's, and she looked on both sides and around for some humbler mound, earthed up and clodded in the usual way. Then her eye followed Oakes, and she read the words with which the inscription opened, Erected by Francis Troy, in beloved memory of Fanny Robin. Oakes saw her, and his first act was to gaze inquiringly and learn how she received this knowledge of the authorship of the work which to himself had caused considerable astonishment. But such discoveries did not much affect her now. Emotional convulsions seemed to have become the commonplaces of her history, and she bade him good morning, and asked him to fill in the hole with the spade which was standing by. Whilst Oak was doing as she desired, Bathsheba collected the flowers, and began planting them with that sympathetic manipulation of roots and leaves which is so conspicuous in a woman's gardening and which flowers seemed to understand and thrive upon. She requested Oak to get the churchwardens to turn the lead-work at the mouth of the gargoyle that hung gaping down upon them, that by this means the stream might be directed sideways, and a repetition of the accident prevented. Finally, with the superfluous magnanimity of a woman whose narrower instincts have brought down bitterness upon her instead of love, she wiped the mud from the tomb, as if she rather liked its words than otherwise, and went again home. End of chapter 46。chapter 47 of Far from the Madding Crowd。this librivox recording is in the public domain。recording by Tig Hines。Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy。chapter 47
Adventures by the Shore Troy wandered along towards the south. A composite feeling, made up of disgust with the, to him, humdrum tediousness of a farmer's life, gloomy images of her who lay in the churchyard, remorse, and a general averseness to his wife's society, impelled him to seek a home in any place on earth save Weatherbury. The sad accessories of Fanny's end confronted him as vivid pictures which threatened to be indelible, and made life in Bathsheba's house intolerable. At three in the afternoon he found himself at the foot of a slope more than a mile in length, which ran to the ridge of a range of hills lying parallel with the shore, and forming a monotonous barrier between the basin of cultivated country inland and the wilder scenery of the coast. Up the hill stretched a road, nearly straight and perfectly white, the two sides approaching each other in a gradual taper, till they met the sky at the top about two miles off. Throughout the length of this narrow and irksome inclined plain not a sign of life was visible on this garish afternoon. Troy toiled up the road with a languor and depression greater than any he had experienced for many a day and year before. The air was warm and muggy, and the top seemed to recede as he approached. At last he reached the summit, and a wide and novel prospect burst upon him with an effect almost like that of the Pacific upon Balboa's gaze. The broad steely sea, marked only by faint lines, which had a semblance of being etched thereon to a degree not deep enough to disturb its general evenness, stretched the whole width of his front and round to the right, where, near the town and port of Budmouth, the sun bristled down upon it, and banished all colour, to substitute in its place a clear, oily polish. Nothing moved in sky, land, or sea, except a frill of milk-white foam along the nearer angles of the shore, shreds of which licked the contiguous stones like tongues. He descended, and came to a small basin of sea enclosed by the cliffs. Troy's nature freshened within him. He thought he would rest and bathe here before going further. He undressed and plunged in. Inside the cove the water was uninteresting to a swimmer, being smooth as a pond and to get a little of the ocean's swell Troy presently swam between the two projecting spurs of rock which formed the pillars of Hercules to this miniature Mediterranean. Unfortunately for Troy a current unknown to him existed outside, which, unimportant to craft of any burden, was awkward for a swimmer who might be taken in it unawares. Troy found himself carried to the left, and then round in a swoop out to sea. He now recollected the place and its sinister character. Many bathers had there prayed for a dry death from time to time, and, like Gonzalo, also had been unanswered, and Troy began to deem it possible that he might be added to their number. Not a boat of any kind was at present within sight, but far in the distance Budmouth lay upon the sea, as it were quietly regarding his efforts, and beside the town the harbour showed its position by a dim meshwork of ropes and spars. After well-nigh exhausting himself in attempts to get back to the mouth of the cove, in his weakness swimming several inches deeper than was his wont, keeping up his breathing entirely by his nostrils, turning upon his back a dozen times over, swimming on papillon, and so on, Troy resolved as a last resort to tread water at a slight incline, and so endeavour to reach the shore at any point, merely giving himself a gentle impetus inwards whilst carried on in the general direction of the tide. 
This necessarily a slow process he found to be not altogether so difficult, and though there was no choice of a landing place, the objects on shore passing by him in a sad and slow procession, he perceptibly approached the extremity of a spit of land yet further to the right, now well defined against the sunny portion of the horizon. While the swimmer's eyes were fixed upon the spit, as his only means of salvation on this side of the unknown, a moving object broke the outline of the extremity, and immediately a ship's boat appeared manned with several sailor-lads, her bows towards the sea. All Troy's vigour spasmodically revived, to prolong the struggle yet a little further. Swimming with his right arm, he held up his left to hail them, splashing upon the waves and shouting with all his might. From the position of the setting sun his white form was distinctly visible upon the now deep-hued bosom of the sea to the east of the boat, and the men saw him at once. Backing their oars and putting the boat about, they pulled towards him with a will, and in five or six minutes from the time of his first halloo two of the sailors hauled him over the stern. They formed part of a brig's crew, and had come ashore for sand. Lending him what little clothing they could spare among them as a slight protection against the rapidly cooling air, they agreed to land them in the morning, and without further delay, for it was growing late, they made again towards the roadstead where their vessel lay. And now night drooped slowly upon the wide watery levels in front, and at no great distance from them, where the shoreline curved round and formed a long ribbon of shade upon the horizon, a series of points of yellow light began to start into existence, denoting the spot to be the site of Budmouth, where the lamps were being lighted along the parade. The cluck of their oars was the only sound of any distinctness upon the sea, and as they laboured amid the thickening shades the lamplights grew larger, each appearing to send a flaming sword deep down into the waves before it, until there arose, among other dim shapes of the kind, the form of the vessel for which they were bound. End of chapter 47「Chapter 48 of Far from the Madding Crowd – This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyge Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter 48 Doubts Arise, Doubts Linger Bathsheba underwent the enlargement of her husband's absence from hours to days with a slight feeling of surprise and a slight feeling of relief, yet neither sensation rose at any time far above the level commonly designated as indifference. She belonged to him. The certainties of that position were so well defined, and the reasonable probabilities of its issue so bounded that she could not speculate on contingencies. Taking no further interest in herself as a splendid woman, she acquired the indifferent feelings of an outsider in contemplating her probable fate as a singular wretch, for Bathsheba drew herself and her future in colours that no reality could exceed for darkness. Her original vigorous pride of youth had sickened, and with it had declined all her anxieties about coming years, since anxiety recognises a better and a worse alternative, and Bathsheba had made up her mind that alternatives on any noteworthy scale had ceased for her. Soon or later, and that not very late, her husband would be home again, and then the days of their tenancy of the upper farm would be numbered. There had originally been shown by the agent to the estate some distrust of Bathsheba's tenure as James Everdeen's successor, on the score of her sex, and her youth, and her beauty, 
but the peculiar nature of her uncle's will, his own frequent testimony before his death to her cleverness in such a pursuit, and her vigorous marshalling of the numerous flocks and herds, which came suddenly into her hands before negotiations were concluded, had won confidence in her powers, and no further objections had been raised. She had latterly been in great doubt as to what the legal effects of her marriage would be upon her position, but no notice had been taken as yet of her change of name, and only one point was clear, that in the event of her own or her husband's inability to meet the agent at the forthcoming January rent-day, very little consideration would be shown, and for that matter very little would be deserved. Once out of the farm the approach of poverty would be sure. Hence Bathsheba lived in a perception that her purposes were broken off. She was not a woman who could hope without good materials for the process, differing thus from the less far-sighted and energetic, though more petted ones of the sex, with whom hope goes on as a sort of clockwork which the merest food and shelter are sufficient to wind up, and perceiving clearly that her mistake had been a fatal one, she accepted her position, and waited coldly for the end. The first Saturday after Troy's departure she went to Castleridge alone, a journey she had not before taken since her marriage. On this Saturday Bathsheba was passing slowly on foot through the crowd of rural businessmen, gathered as usual in front of the market-house, who were as usual gazed upon by the burghers with feelings that those healthy lives were dearly paid for, by exclusion from possible aldermanship, when a man, who had apparently been following her, said some words to another on her left hand. Bathsheba's ears were keen as those of any wild animal, and she distinctly heard what the speaker said, though her back was towards him. "'I am looking for Mrs. Troy. Is that she there?' "'Yes, that's the young lady, I believe,' said the person addressed. "'I have some awkward news to break to her. Her husband is drowned.' As if endowed with the spirit of prophecy, Bathsheba gasped out, "'No, it is not true, it cannot be true.' Then she said and heard no more. The ice of self-command which had latterly gathered over her was broken, and the currents burst forth again, and overwhelmed her. A darkness came into her eyes, and she fell. But not to the ground. A gloomy man, who had been observing her from under the portico of the old corn-exchange, when she passed through the group without, stepped quickly to her side at the moment of her exclamation, and caught her in his arms as she sank down. "'What is it?' said Boldwood, looking up at the bringer of the bad news, as he supported her. "'Her husband was drowned this week, while bathing in Lulwind Cove. A coastguardsman found his clothes, and brought them into Budmouth yesterday.' Thereupon a strange fire lighted up in Boldwood's eye, and his face flushed with the suppressed excitement of an unutterable thought. Everybody's glance was now centred upon him and the unconscious Bathsheba. He lifted her bodily off the ground, and smoothed down the folds of her dress, as a child might have taken a storm-beaten bird, and arranged its ruffled plumes, and bore her along the pavement to the King's Arms Inn. Here he passed with her under the archway into a private room, and by the time he had deposited, so loathly, the precious burden upon a sofa, Bathsheba had opened her eyes. Remembering all that occurred, she murmured, "'I want to go home.' Boldwood left the room. He stood for a moment in the passage to recover his senses. The experience had been too much for his consciousness to keep up with, and now that he had grasped it, it had gone again. For those few heavenly golden moments she had been in his arms, 
What did it matter about her not knowing it? She had been close to his breast, and he had been close to hers. He started onward again, and sending a woman to her, went out to ascertain all the facts of the case. These appeared to be limited to what he had already heard. He then ordered her horse to be put into the gig, and when all was ready returned to inform her. He found that, though still pale and unwell, she had in the meantime sent for the Budmouth man who had brought the tidings, and learnt from him all there was to know. Being hardly in a condition to drive home, as she had driven to town, Boldwood, with every delicacy of manner and feeling, offered to get her a driver, or to give her a seat in his phaeton, which was more comfortable than her own conveyance. These proposals Bathsheba gently declined, and the farmer at once departed. About half an hour later she invigorated herself by an effort, and took her seat and the reins as usual, in external appearance much as if nothing had happened. She went out of the town by a tortuous back street, and drove slowly along, unconscious of the road and the scene. The first shades of evening were showing themselves when Bathsheba reached home, where, silently alighting and leaving the horse in the hands of the boy, she proceeded at once upstairs. Liddy met her on the landing. The news had preceded Bathsheba to Weatherbury by half an hour, and Liddy looked inquiringly into her mistress's face. Bathsheba had nothing to say. She entered her bedroom and sat by the window, and thought and thought till night enveloped her, and the extreme lines only of her shape were visible. Somebody came to the door, knocked and opened it. "'Well, what is it, Liddy?' she said. "'I was thinking there must be something got for you to wear.' said Liddy, with hesitation. "'What do you mean?' "'Morning.' "'No, no, no,' said Bathsheba, hurriedly. "'But I suppose there must be something done for poor—' "'Not at present, I think. It is not necessary.' "'Why not, ma'am?' "'Because he is still alive.' "'How do you know that?' said Liddy, amazed. "'I don't know it. But wouldn't it have been different, or shouldn't I have heard more?' Or wouldn't they have found him, Liddy? Or I don't know how it is, but death would have been different from how it this is. I am perfectly convinced that he is still alive. Bathsheba remained firm in this opinion till Monday, when two circumstances conjoined to shake it. The first was a short paragraph in the local newspaper, which, beyond making by a methodizing pen formidable presumptive evidence of Troy's death by drowning, contained the important testimony of a young Mr. Barker, M.D., of Budmouth, who spoke to being an eye-witness of the accident in a letter to the editor. In this he stated that he was passing over the cliff on the remoter side of the cove just as the sun was setting. At that time he saw a bather carried along in the current outside the mouth of the cove, and guessed in an instant that there was but a poor chance for him unless he should be possessed of unusual muscular powers. He drifted behind a projection of the coast, and Mr. Barker followed along the shore in the same direction. But by the time that he could reach an elevation sufficiently great to command a view of the sea beyond, dusk had set in, and nothing further was to be seen. The other circumstance was the arrival of his clothes, when it became necessary for her to examine and identify them, though this had virtually been done long before by those who inspected the letters in his pockets. It was so evident to her in the midst of her agitation that Troy had undressed in the full conviction of dressing again almost immediately, that the notion that anything but death could have prevented him was a perverse one to entertain. 
Then Bathsheba said to herself that others were assured in their opinion, strange that she should not be. A strange reflection occurred to her, causing her face to flush. Suppose that Troy had followed Fanny into another world. Had he done this intentionally, yet contrived to make his death appear like an accident? Nevertheless, this thought of how the apparent might differ from the real, made vivid by her bygone jealousy of Fanny, and the remorse he had shown that night, did not blind her to the perception of a likelier difference, less tragic, but to herself far more disastrous. When alone late that evening beside a small fire, and much calmed down, Bathsheba took Troy's watch into her hand, which had been restored to her with the rest of the articles belonging to him. She opened the case as he had opened it before her a week ago. There was a little coil of pale hair, which had been as the fuse to this great explosion. He was hers, and she was his. They should be gone together, she said. I am nothing to either of them, and why should I keep her hair? She took it in her hand, and held it over the fire. No, I'll not burn it. I'll keep it in memory of her, poor thing, she added, snatching back her hand. End of chapter 48《Chapter 49 of Far from the Madding Crowd — This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines — Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy — Chapter 49 Oak's Advancement — A Great Hope The later autumn and the winter drew on apace, and the leaves lay thick upon the turf of the glades and the mosses of the woods. Bathsheba, having previously been living in a state of suspended feeling which was not suspense, now lived in a mood of quietude which was not precisely peacefulness. While she had known him to be alive she could have thought of his death with equanimity, but now that it might be she had lost him, she regretted that he was not still hers. She kept the farm going, raked in her profits without caring keenly about them and expended money on ventures because she had done so in bygone days, which, though not long gone by, seemed infinitely removed from her present. She looked back upon that past over a great gulf, as if she were now a dead person, having the faculty of meditation still left in her, by means of which, like the mouldering gentlefolk of the poet's story, she could sit and ponder what a gift life used to be. However, one excellent result of her general apathy was the long-delayed installation of Oak as bailiff, but he, having virtually exercised that function for a long time already, the change, beyond the substantial increase of wages it brought, was little more than a nominal one addressed to the outside world. Boldwood lived secluded and inactive. Much of his wheat and all of his barley of that season had been spoilt by the rain. It sprouted grew into intricate mats, and was ultimately thrown to the pigs in armfuls. The strange neglect which had produced this ruin and waste became the subject of whispered talk among all the people round, and it was elicited from one of Boldwood's men that forgetfulness had nothing to do with it, for he had been reminded of the danger to his corn as many times and as persistently as inferiors dared to do. The sight of the pigs turning in disgust from the rotten ears seemed to arouse Boldwood and he one evening sent for Oak. Whether it was suggested by Bathsheba's recent act of promotion or not, the farmer proposed at the interview that Gabriel should undertake the superintendence of the lower farm as well as of Bathsheba's, 
because of the necessity Boldwood felt for such aid, and the impossibility of discovering a more trustworthy man. Gabriel's malignant star was assuredly setting fast. Bathsheba, when she learnt of this proposal, for Oak was obliged to consult her, at first languidly objected. She considered that the two farms together were too extensive for the observation of one man. Boldwood, who was apparently determined by personal rather than commercial reasons, suggested that Oak should be furnished with a horse for his sole use, when the plan would present no difficulty, the two farms lying side by side. Boldwood did not directly communicate with her during these negotiations, only speaking to Oak, who was the go-between throughout. All was harmoniously arranged at last, and we now see Oak mounted on a strong cob, and daily trotting the length and breadth of about two thousand acres in a cheerful spirit of surveillance, as if the crops all belonged to him, the actual mistress of the one half and the master of the other, sitting in their respective homes in gloomy and sad seclusion. Out of this there arose, during the spring succeeding, a talk in the parish that Gabriel Oak was feathering his nest fast. "'Whatever do you think?' said Susan Tall. "'Gable Oak is coming quite a dand. "'He now wears shining boots or hardly a hob in them two or three times a week, "'and a tall hat of Sundays, and I hardly knows the name of a smock-frock. "'When I see people strut enough to be cut up into bantam-cocks, "'I stand dormant with wonder, and says no more.' "'It was eventually known that Gabriel, though paid a fixed wage by Bathsheba, "'independent of the fluctuations of agricultural profits, had made an engagement with Boldwood by which Oak was to receive a share of the receipts. A small share, certainly, yet it was money of a higher quality than mere wages, and capable of expansion in a way that wages were not. Some were becoming to consider Oak a near man, for though his condition had thus far improved, he lived in no better style than before, occupying the same cottage, repairing his own potatoes, mending his stockings, and sometimes even making his bed with his own hands. But as Oak was not only provokingly indifferent to public opinion, but a man who clung persistently to old habits and usages simply because they were old, there was room for doubt as to his motives. A great hope had latterly germinated in Boldwood, whose unreasoning devotion to Bathsheba could only be characterised as a fond madness which neither time nor circumstance, evil nor good report, could weaken or destroy. This fevered hope had grown up again like a grain of mustard-seed during the quiet which followed the hasty conjecture that Troy was drowned. He nourished it fearfully and almost shunned the contemplation of it in earnest, lest facts should reveal the wildness of his dream. Bathsheba, having at last been persuaded to wear mourning, her appearance as she entered the church in that guise was in itself a weekly addition to his faith that a time was coming, very far off perhaps, yet surely nearing, when his waiting on events should have its reward. How long he might have to wait he had not yet closely considered. What he would try to recognise was that the severe schooling she had been subjected to had made Bathsheba much more considerate than she had formerly been of the feelings of others, and he trusted that, should she be willing at any time in the future to marry any man at all, that man would be himself. There was a substratum of good feeling in her. Her self-reproach for the injury she had thoughtlessly done him might be depended upon now to a much greater extent than before her infatuation and disappointment. 
it would be possible to approach her by the channel of her good nature, and to suggest a friendly business-like compact between them for fulfilment at some future day, keeping the passionate side of his desire entirely out of her sight. Such was Boldwood's hope. To the eyes of the middle-aged, Bathsheba was perhaps additionally charming just now. Her exuberance of spirit was pruned down. The original phantom of delight had shown herself to be not too bright for human nature's daily food, and she had been able to enter this second poetical phase without losing much of the first in the process. Bathsheba's return from a two-month's visit to her old aunt at Norcombe afforded the impassioned and yearning farmer a pretext for inquiring directly after her, now possibly in the ninth month of her widowhood, and endeavouring to get a notion of her state of mind regarding him. This occurred in the middle of the haymaking, and Boldwood contrived to be near Liddy, who was assisting in the fields. "'I am glad to see you out of doors, Lydia,' he said pleasantly. She simpered, and wondered in her heart why he should speak so frankly to her. "'I hope Mrs. Troy is quite well after her long absence,' he continued, in a manner expressing that the coldest-hearted neighbour could scarcely say less about her. "'She is quite well, sir.' "'And cheerful, I suppose?' "'Yes, cheerful.' "'Fearful, did you say?' "'Oh, no, I merely said she was cheerful.' "'Tells you all her affairs?' "'No, sir.' "'Some of them?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Mrs. Troy puts much confidence in you, Lydia, and very wisely, perhaps.' "'She do, sir. I've been with her all through her troubles, and was with her at the time of Mr. Troy's going and all.' and if she were to marry again I expect I should bide with her." "'She promises that you shall, quite natural,' said the strategic lover, throbbing throughout him at the presumption which Liddy's words appeared to warrant, that his darling had thought of remarriage. "'No, she doesn't promise it exactly. I merely judge on my own account.' "'Yes, yes, I understand. When she alludes to the possibility of marrying again, you conclude—she never do allude to it, sir said Liddy, thinking how very stupid Mr. Boldwood was getting. "'Of course not,' he returned hastily, his hope falling again. "'You needn't quite take such long reaches with your rake, Lydia. Short and quick ones are best. Well, perhaps, as she is absolute mistress again now, it is wise of her to resolve never to give up her freedom.' "'My mistress did certainly once say, and though not seriously, that she supposed she might marry again at the end of seven years from last year.' if she cared to risk Mr. Troy's coming back and claiming her. "'Ah, six years from the present time. Said that she might. She might marry at once, in every reasonable person's opinion, whatever the lawyers may say to the contrary.' "'Have you been to ask them?' said Liddy innocently. "'Not I,' said Boldwood, growing red. "'Liddy, you needn't stay here a minute longer than you wish, so Mr. Oak says. I'm now going on a little further. Good afternoon.' He went away, vexed with himself, and ashamed for having this one time in his life done anything which could be called underhand. Poor Boldwood had no more skill in finesse than a battering-ram, and he was uneasy with the sense of having made himself to appear stupid, and, what was worse, mean. But he had, after all, lighted upon one fact by way of repayment. It was a singularly fresh and fascinating fact, and, though not without its sadness, it was pertinent and real. In little more than six years from this time Bathsheba might certainly marry him. There was something definite in that hope, 
for admitting that there might have been no deep thought in her words to Liddy about marriage, they showed at least her creed on the matter. This pleasant notion was now continually in his mind. Six years were a long time, but how much shorter than never! The idea he had for so long been obliged to endure. Jacob had served twice seven years for Rachel. What were six for such a woman as this? He tried to like the notion of waiting for her better than that of winning her at once. Boldwood felt his love to be so deep and strong and eternal that it was possible she had never yet known its full volume, and this patience in delay would afford him an opportunity of giving sweet proof to the point. He would annihilate the six years of his life as if they were minutes, so little did he value his time on earth beside her love. He would let her see, all those six years of intangible ethereal courtship, how little care he had for anything but as it bore upon the consummation. Meanwhile, the early and late summer brought round the week in which Greenhill Fair was held. This fair was frequently attended by the folk of Weatherbury. End of chapter 49《》of Far from the Madding Crowd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter 50. The Sheep Fair. Troy touches his wife's hand. Greenhill was the Nijni Novgorod of South Wessex, and the busiest, merriest, noisiest day of the whole statute number was the day of the Sheep Fair. This yearly gathering was upon the summit of a hill which retained in good preservation the remains of an ancient earthwork, consisting of a huge rampart and entrenchment of an oval form encircling the top of the hill, though somewhat broken down here and there. To each of the two chief openings on opposite sides a winding road ascended, and the level green space of ten or fifteen acres, enclosed by the bank, was the site of the fair. A few permanent erections dotted the spot, but the majority of visitors patronized canvas alone for resting and feeding under during the time of their sojourn here. Shepherds who attended with their flocks from long distances started from home two or three days, or even a week, before the fair, driving their charges a few miles each day, not more than ten or twelve, and resting them at night in hired fields by the wayside at previously chosen points, where they fed having fasted since morning. The shepherd of each flock marched behind, a bundle containing his kit for the week strapped upon his shoulders, and in his hand his crook, which he used as the staff of his pilgrimage. Several of the sheep would get worn and lame, and occasionally a lambing occurred on the road. To meet these contingencies there was frequently provided to accompany the flocks from the remoter points a pony and wagon into which the weekly ones were taken for the remainder of the journey. The weathery farms, however, were no such long distance from the hill, and those arrangements were not necessary in their case. But the large united flocks of Bathsheba and Farmer Boldwood formed a valuable and imposing multitude which demanded much attention, and on this account Gabriel, in addition to Boldwood's shepherd and Cane Ball, accompanied them along the way, through the decayed old town of Kingsbere, and upward to the plateau, old George the dog, of course, behind them. When the autumn sun slanted over Greenhill this morning, and lighted the dewy flat upon its crest, 
Nebulous clouds of dust were to be seen, floating between the pairs of hedges which streaked the wide prospect around in all directions. These gradually converged upon the base of the hill, and the flocks became individually visible, climbing the serpentine ways which led to the top. Thus, in a slow procession, they entered the opening to which the roads tended, multitude after multitude, horned and hornless, blue flocks and red flocks, buff flocks and brown flocks, even green and salmon-tinted flocks, according to the fancy of the colorist and custom of the farm. Men were shouting, dogs were barking, with greatest animation, but the thronging travellers in so long a journey had grown nearly indifferent to such terrors, though they still bleated piteously at the unwontedness of their experiences. A tall shepherd, rising here and there in the midst of them, like a gigantic idol, amid a crowd of prostrate devotees. The great mass of sheep in the fair consisted of South Downs and the old Wessex horned breeds. To the latter class Bathsheba's and Farmer Boldwood's mainly belonged. These filed in about nine o'clock, their vermiculated horns lopping gracefully on either side of their cheeks in geometrically perfect spirals, a small pink-and-white ear nestling under each horn. Before and behind came other varieties, perfect leopards as to the full, rich substance of their coats, and only lacking the spots. There were also a few of the Oxfordshire breeds, whose wool was beginning to curl like a child's flaxen hair, though surpassed in this respect by the effeminate Leicesters, which were in turn less curly than the Cotswolds. But the most picturesque by far was the small flock of Exmoors, which chanced to be there this year. Their pied faces and legs, dark and heavy horns, tresses of wool hanging round their swarthy foreheads, quite relieved the monotony of the flocks in that quarter. All these bleating, panting, and weary thousands had entered, and were penned before the morning had far advanced, the dog belonging to each flock being tied to the corner of the pen containing it. Alleys for pedestrians intersected the pens, which soon became crowded with buyers and sellers, from far and near. In another part of the hill an altogether different scene began to force itself upon the eye towards midday. A circular tent, of exceptional newness and size, was in course of erection here. As the day drew on, the flocks began to change hands, lightening the shepherds' responsibilities, and they turned their attention to this tent and inquired of a man at work there, whose soul seemed concentrated on tying a bothering knot in no time, what was going on. "'The Royal Hippodrome performance of Turnpike's Ride to York and the Death of Black Bess,' replied the man promptly, without turning his eyes or leaving off tying. As soon as the tent was completed, the band struck up highly stimulating harmonies, and the announcement was publicly made. Black Bess, standing in a conspicuous position on the outside, as a living proof, if proof were wanted, of the truth of the ocular utterances from the stage over which the people were to enter. These were so convinced by such genuine appeals to heart and understanding both, that they soon began to crowd in abundantly. Among the foremost being visible Jan Coggins and Joseph Poorgrass, who are holiday-keeping here to-day. "'That's the great ruffin pushing me!' screamed a woman in front of Jan, over her shoulder at him, when the rush was at its fiercest. "'How can I help pushing ye when folk behind push me?' said Coggan, in a deprecating tone, turning his head towards the aforesaid folk as far as he could, without turning his body, which was jammed as in a vice. There was a silence, then the drums and trumpets again set forth their echoing notes. 
the crowd was again ecstasized, and gave another lurch in which Coggan and Poorgrass were again thrust by those behind upon the women in front. "'Oh, that helpless female should be at the mercy of such ruffins!' exclaimed one of the ladies again, as she swayed like a reed shaken by the wind. "'Now,' said Coggan, appealing in an earnest voice to the public at large, as it stood clustered about his shoulder-blades, "'Did ye ever hear such an unreasonable woman as that? Upon my carcass, neighbours, if I could only get out of this cheese-ring, the damn women might eat the show for me.' "'Oh, don't lose your temper, Jan,' implored Joseph Poorgrass in a whisper. "'They might get their men to murder us, for I think by the shine in their eyes that they be a sinful form of womankind.' Jan held his tongue, as if he had no objection to be pacified to please a friend, and they gradually reached the foot of the ladder. Poor Grass being flattened like a jumping-jack, and the sixpence, for admission, which he had got ready half an hour earlier, having become so reeking hot in the tight squeeze of his excited hand, that the woman in spangles, brazen rings set with glass diamonds, and with chalked face and shoulders, who took the money of him, hastily dropped it again, from a fear that some trick had been played to burn her fingers. So they all entered, and the cloth of the tent, to the eyes of an observer on the outside, became bulged into innumerable pimples, such as we observe on a sack of potatoes, caused by the various human heads, backs, and elbows at high pressure within. At the rear of the large tent there were two small dressing-tents. One of these, allotted to the male performers, was partitioned into halves by a cloth, and in one of the divisions there was sitting on the grass, pulling on a pair of jack-boots, a young man whom we instantly recognise as Sergeant Troy. Troy's appearance in this position may be briefly accounted for. The brig aboard which he was taken to Budmouth Roads was about to start on a voyage, though somewhat short of hands. Troy read the articles and joined, but before they sailed a boat was dispatched across the bay to Lullwind Cove. As he had half suspected, his clothes were gone. He ultimately worked his passage to the United States, where he made a precarious living in various towns, as professor of gymnastics, sword exercise, fencing, and pugilism. A few months were sufficient to give him a distaste for this kind of life. There was a certain animal form of refinement in his nature, and however pleasant a strange condition might be whilst privations were easily warded off, it was disadvantageously coarse when money was short. There was ever present, too, the idea that he could claim a home and its comforts did he but choose to return to England and Weatherbury Farm. Whether Bathsheba thought him dead was a frequent subject of curious conjecture. To England he did return at last, but the fact of drawing nearer to Weatherbury abstracted its fascinations, and his intention to enter his old groove at the place became modified. It was with gloom he considered on landing at Liverpool that, if he were to go home, his reception would be of a kind very unpleasant to contemplate, for what Troy had in the way of emotion was an occasional fitful sentiment, which sometimes caused him as much inconvenience as emotion of a strong and healthy kind. Bathsheba was not a woman to be made a fool of, or a woman to suffer in silence, and how could he endure existence with a spirited wife? to whom at first entering he would be beholden for food and lodging. Moreover, it was not at all unlikely that his wife would fail at her farming, if she had not already done so, and he would then become liable for her maintenance. And what a life such a future of poverty with her would be, the spectre of Fanny constantly between them, 
harrowing his temper and embittering her words. Thus, for reasons touching on distaste, regret, and shame commingled, he put off his return from day to day, and would have decided to put it off altogether if he could have found anywhere else the ready-made establishment which existed for him there. At this time, the July preceding the September in which we find him at Greenhill Fair, he fell in with a travelling circus which was performing in the outskirts of a northern town. Troy introduced himself to the manager by taming a restive horse of the troop, hitting a suspended apple with a pistol-bullet fired from the animal's back when in full gallop, and other feats. For his merits in these, all more or less based upon his experiences as a dragoon guardsman, Troy was taken into the company, and the play of Turpin was prepared with a view to his personation of the chief character. Troy was not greatly elated by the appreciative spirit in which he was undoubtedly treated, but he thought the engagement might afford him a few weeks for consideration. It was thus, carelessly, and without having formed any definite plan for the future, that Troy found himself at Greenhill Fair, with the rest of the company, on this day. And now the mild autumn sun got lower, and in front of the pavilion the following incident had taken place. Bathsheba, who was driven to the fair that day by her odd man, Poorgrass, had, like everyone else, read or heard the announcement that Mr. Francis, the great cosmopolitan equestrian and rough-rider, would enact the part of Turpin, and she was not yet too old and careworn to be without a little curiosity to see him. This particular show was by far the largest and grandest in the fair, a horde of little shows grouping themselves under its shade like chickens round a hen. The crowd had passed in, and Boldwood, who had been watching all the day for an opportunity of speaking to her, seeing her comparatively isolated, came up to her side. "'I hope the sheep have done well to-day, Mrs. Troy,' he said, nervously. "'Oh, yes, thank you,' said Bathsheba, colour springing up in the centre of her cheeks. "'I was fortunate enough to sell them all just as we got upon the hill, so we hadn't to pen them at all.' "'And now you are entirely at leisure?' "'Yes, except that I have to see one more dealer in two hours' time. Otherwise I should be going home.' He was looking at this large tent and the announcement. Have you ever seen the play of Turpin's Ride to York? Turpin was a real man, was he not? Oh, yes, and perfectly true, all of it. Indeed, I think I've heard Jan Coggan say that a relation of his knew Tom King, Turpin's friend, quite well. Coggan is rather given to strange stories connected with his relations, we must remember, and I hope they can all be believed. Yes, yes, we know Coggan. But Turpin is true enough. You have never seen it played, I suppose? Never. I was not allowed to go into these places when I was young. Hark! What's that prancing? How they shout! Black Bess just started off, I suppose. Am I right in supposing you would like to see the performance, Mrs. Troy? Please excuse my mistake, if it is one. But if you would like to, I'll get a seat for you with pleasure. Perceiving that she hesitated, he added, I myself should not stay to see it. I have seen it before. Now Bathsheba did care a little to see the show, and had only withheld her feet from the ladder because she feared to go in alone. She had been hoping that Oak might appear, whose assistance in such cases was always accepted as an inalienable right, but Oak was nowhere to be seen, and hence it was that she said, "'Then if you will just look in first to see if there's room, I think I will go in for a minute or two.' And so a short time after this Bathsheba appeared in the tent, with Boldwood at her elbow who, taking her to a reserved seat, 
again withdrew. This feature consisted of one raised bench in a very conspicuous part of the circle, covered with red cloth and floored with a piece of carpet, and Bathsheba immediately found, to her confusion, that she was a single reserved individual in the tent, the rest of the crowded spectators, one and all, standing on their legs on the border of the arena, where they got twice as good a view of the performance for half the money. Hence, as many eyes were turned upon her, enthroned alone in this place of honour, against a scarlet background, as upon the ponies and clowns who were engaged in preliminary exploits in the centre, Turpin not having yet appeared. Once there Bathsheba was forced to make the best of it and remain. She sat down, spreading her skirts with some dignity over the unoccupied space on each side of her, and giving a new and feminine aspect to the pavilion. In a few minutes she noticed the fat red nape of Coggan's neck among those standing just below her, and Joseph Poorgrass's saintly profile a little further on. The interior was shadowy with a peculiar shade. The strange luminous semi-opacities of fine autumn afternoons and eves intensified into Rembrandt effects the few yellow sunbeams which came through holes and divisions in the canvas, and spirted like jets of gold-dust across the dusky blue atmosphere of haze pervading the tent, until they alighted on inner surfaces of cloth opposite, and shone like little lamps suspended there. Troy, on peeping from his dressing-tent through a slit for reconnoitre before entering, saw his unconscious wife on high before him as described, sitting as queen of the tournament. He started back in utter confusion, for although his disguise effectually concealed his personality, he instantly felt that she would be sure to recognise his voice. He had several times during the day thought of the possibility of some Weatherbury person or other appearing and recognising him, but he had taken the risk carelessly. If they see me, let them, he had said. But here was Bathsheba in her own person, and the reality of the scene was so much intenser than any of his prefiguring that he felt he had not half enough considered the point. She looked so charming and fair that his cool mood about weathery people was changed. He had not expected her to exercise this power over him in the twinkling of an eye. Should he go on, and care nothing? He could not bring himself to do that. Beyond a politic wish to remain unknown, there suddenly arose in him now a sense of shame at the possibility that his attractive young wife, who already despised him, should despise him more by discovering him in so mean a condition after so long a time. He actually blushed at the thought, and was vexed beyond measure that his sentiments of dislike towards Weatherbury should have led him to dally about the country in this way. But Troy was never more clever than when absolutely at his wit's end. He hastily thrust aside the curtain dividing his own little dressing-space from that of the manager and proprietor, who now appeared as the individual called Tom King, as far down as his waist, and as the aforesaid respectable manager thence to his toes. "'There's a devil to pay,' said Troy. "'How's that?' "'Why, there's a blackguard creditor in the tent I don't want to see, who'll discover me and nab me as sure as Satan if I open my mouth. What's to be done?' "'You must appear now, I think.' "'I can't.' "'But the play must proceed.' "'Do you give that Turpin has got a bad cold, and can't speak his part, but that he'll perform it just the same without speaking?' The proprietor shook his head. "'Anyhow, play or no play, I won't open my mouth,' said Troy firmly. "'Very well. Let me see. "'I'll tell you how we'll manage,' said the other, who perhaps felt it would be extremely awkward to offend his leading man just at this time. 
I won't tell them anything about just keeping silence. Go on with the piece, and say nothing, doing what you can by a judicious wink now and then, and a few indomitable nods in the heroic places, you know. They'll never find out that the speeches are omitted. This seemed feasible enough, for Turpin's speeches were not many or long, the fascination of the piece lying entirely in the action, and accordingly the play began, and at the appointed time Black Bess leapt into the grassy circle amid the plaudits of the spectators. At the turnpike scene, where Bess and Turpin were hotly pursued at midnight by the officers, and the half-awake gatekeeper in his tasselled nightcap denies that any horseman has passed, Coggan uttered a broad-chested, "'Well done!' which could be heard all over the fair above the bleeding, and Poorgrass smiled delightedly with a nice sense of dramatic contrast between our hero, who coolly leaps the gate, and halting justice in the form of his enemies, who must needs pull up cumbersomely and wait to be let through. At the death of Tom King he could not refrain from seizing Coggan by the hand and whispering, with tears in his eyes, "'Of course, he's not really shot, Jan, only seemingly.' and when the last sad scene came on, and the body of the gallant and faithful Bess had to be carried out on a shutter by twelve volunteers from among the spectators, nothing could restrain poor Grass from lending a hand, exclaiming as he asked Jan to join him, "'Twill be something to tell of at Warren's in future years, Jan, and hand down to her children." For many a year in Weatherbury, Joseph told, with the air of a man who had had experiences in his time, that he touched with his own hand the hoof of Bess as she lay upon the board upon his shoulder. If, as some thinkers hold, immortality consists in being enshrined in others' memories, then did Black Bess become immortal that day, if she never had done so before. Meanwhile Troy had added a few touches to his ordinary make-up for the character, the more effectually to disguise himself, and though he had felt faint qualms on first entering, the metamorphosis effected by judiciously lining his face with a wire rendered him safe from the eyes of Bathsheba and her men. Nevertheless, he was relieved when it was got through. There was a second performance in the evening, and the tent was lighted up. Troy had taken his part very quietly this time venturing to introduce a few speeches on occasion, and was just concluding it when, while standing at the edge of the circle, contiguous to the first row of spectators, he observed within a yard of him the eye of a man darted keenly into his side features. Troy hastily shifted his position, after having recognised in the scrutineer the knavish bailiff Pennyways, his wife's sworn enemy, who still hung about the outskirts of Weatherbury. At first Troy resolved to take no notice and abide by circumstances. That he had been recognised by this man was highly probable, yet there was room for a doubt. Then the great objection he had felt to allowing news of his proximity to precede him to Weatherbury in the event of his return, based on a feeling that knowledge of his present occupation would discredit him still further in his wife's eyes, returned in full force. Moreover, should he resolve not to return at all, a tale of his being alive and being in the neighbourhood would be awkward, and he was anxious to acquire a knowledge of his wife's temporal affairs before deciding which to do. In this dilemma Troy at once went out to reconnoitre. It occurred to him that to find Pennyways and make a friend of him if possible would be a very wise act. He had put on a thick beard borrowed from the establishment, and in this he wandered about the fair field. It was now almost dark, and respectable people were getting their carts and gigs ready to go home. The largest refreshment booth in the fair was provided by an innkeeper from the neighbouring town. 
This was considered an unexceptionable place for obtaining the necessary food and rest. Host Trencher, as he was jauntily called by the local newspaper, being a substantial man of high repute for catering through all the country round. The tent was divided into first- and second-class compartments, and at the end of the first-class division was a yet further enclosure for the most exclusive, fenced off from the body of the tent by a luncheon-bar, behind which the host himself stood bustling about in a white apron and shirt-sleeves, and looking as if he had never lived anywhere but under canvas all his life. In these penetralia were chairs and a table which, on candles being lighted, made quite a cosy and luxurious show, with an urn, plated tea and coffee-pots, china teacups, and plum cakes. Troy stood at the entrance to the booth, where a gypsy woman was frying pancakes over a little fire of sticks and selling them at a penny apiece, and looked over the heads of the people within. He could see nothing of Pennyways, but he soon discerned Bathsheba through an opening in the reserved space at the further end. Troy thereupon retreated, went round the tent into the darkness, and listened. He could hear Bathsheba's voice immediately inside the canvas. She was conversing with the man. A warmth overspread his face. Surely she was not so unprincipled as to flirt in a fair. He wondered if, then, she reckoned upon his death as an absolute certainty. To get at the root of the matter, Troy took a penknife from his pocket, and softly made two little cuts crosswise in the cloth which, by folding back the corners, left a hole the size of a wafer. Close to this he placed his face, withdrawing it again in a moment of surprise, for his eye had been within twelve inches of the top of Bathsheba's head. It was too near to be convenient. He made another hole, a little to one side and lower down, in a shaded place beside her chair, from which it was easy and safe to survey her by looking horizontally. Troy took in the scene completely now. She was leaning back, sipping a cup of tea that she held in her hand, and the owner of the male voice was Boldwood, who had apparently just brought the cup to her. Bathsheba, being in a negligent mood, leant so idly against the canvas that it was pressed into the shape of her shoulder, and she was, in fact, as good as in Troy's arms, and he was obliged to keep his breast carefully backward, that she might not feel its warmth through the cloth as he gazed in. Troy found unexpected chords of feeling to be stirred again within him, as they had been stirred earlier in the day. She was handsome as ever, and she was his. It was some minutes before he could counteract his sudden wish to go in and claim her. Then he thought how the proud girl who had always looked down upon him, even whilst it was to love him, would hate him on discovering him to be a strolling player. Were he to make himself known, that chapter of his life must at all risks be kept for ever from her and from the weathery people, or his name would be a byword throughout the parish. He would be nicknamed Turpin as long as he lived. Assuredly, before he could claim her, these few past months of his existence must be entirely blotted out. "'Shall I get you another cup of tea before you start, ma'am?' said Farmer Boldwood. "'Thank you,' said Bathsheba. "'But I must be going at once.' It was great neglect in that man to keep me waiting here till so late. I should have gone two hours ago, if it had not been for him. I had no idea of coming in here, but there's nothing so refreshing as a cup of tea, though I should never have got one if you hadn't helped me." Troy scrutinized her cheek as lit by the candles, and watched each varying shade thereon, and the white shell-like sinuosities of her little ear. She took out her purse, and was insisting to Boldwood on paying for the tea for herself, when at this moment Pennyways entered the tent. 
Troy trembled. Here was his scheme for respectability in danger at once. He was about to leave his hole of a spile, attempt to follow Pennyways, and find out if the ex-bailiff had recognised him, when he was arrested by the conversation and found he was too late. "'Excuse me, ma'am,' said Pennyways. "'I've some private information for your ear alone.' "'I cannot hear it now,' she said coldly. That Bathsheba could not endure this man was evident. In fact, he was continually coming to her with some tale or other, by which he might creep into favour at the expense of persons maligned. "'I'll write it down,' said Pennyways, confidently. He stooped over the table, pulled a leaf from a warped pocket-book, and wrote upon the paper in a round hand, "'Your husband is here. I've seen him. Who's the fool now?' This he folded small and handed towards her. Bathsheba would not read it. She would not even put out her hand to take it. Pennyways then, with a laugh of derision, tossed it into her lap, and, turning away, left her. From the words and actions of Pennyways, Troy, though he had not been able to see what the ex-bailiff wrote, had not a moment's doubt that the note referred to him. Nothing that he could think of could be done to check the exposure. Curse my luck! he whispered, and added imprecations which rustled in the gloom like a pestilent wind. Meanwhile, Boldwood said, taking up the note from her lap, "'Don't you wish to read it, Mrs. Troy? If not, I'll destroy it.' "'Oh, well,' said Bathsheba, carelessly, "'perhaps it is unjust not to read it, but I can guess what it is about. He wants me to recommend him, or it is to tell me of some little scandal or other connected with my workpeople. He's always doing that.' Bathsheba held the note in her right hand. Boldwood handed towards her a plate of cut bread and butter, when, in order to take a slice, she put the note into her left hand, where she was still holding the purse, and then allowed her hand to drop beside her, close to the canvas. The moment had come for saving his game, and Troy impulsively felt that he would play the card. For yet another time he looked at the fair hand, and saw the pink fingertips and the blue veins of the wrist, encircled by a bracelet of coral chippings which she wore. How familiar it all was to him! Then, with a lightning action in which he was such an adept, he noiselessly slipped his hand under the bottom of the tent-cloth, which was far from being pinned tightly down, lifted it a little way, keeping his eye to the hole, snatched the note from her fingers, dropped the canvas, and ran away in the gloom towards the bank and ditch, smiling at the scream of astonishment which burst from her. Troy then slid down on the outside of the rampart, hastened around in the bottom of the entrenchment to a distance of a hundred yards, ascended again, and crossed boldly in a slow walk towards the front entrance of the tent. His object was now to get the pennyways, and prevent a repetition of the announcement until such time as he should choose. Troy reached the tent door and standing among the groups there gathered, looked anxiously for Pennyways, evidently not wishing to make himself prominent by inquiring for him. One or two men were speaking of the daring attempt that had just been made to rob a young lady by lifting the canvas of the tent beside her. It was supposed that the rogue had imagined a slip of paper which she held in her hand to be a bank-note, for he had seized it, and made off with it, leaving her purse behind. His chagrin and disappointment at discovering its worthlessness would be a good joke it was said. However, the occurrence seemed to have become known to few, for it had not interrupted a fiddler, who had lately begun playing by the door of the tent, nor the four bowed old men with grim countenances and walking-sticks in hand, who were dancing Major Malley's reel to the tune. 
Behind these stood Pennyways. Troy glided up to him, beckoned, and whispered a few words, and with a mutual glance of concurrence the two men went into the night together. End of chapter 50「Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy » Chapter 51 Bathsheba Talks with Her Outrider The arrangement for getting back again to Weatherbury had been that Oak should take the place of poor grass in Bathsheba's conveyance and drive her home, it being discovered late in the afternoon that Joseph was suffering from his old complaint, a multiplying eye, and was, therefore, hardly trustworthy as a coachman and protector to a woman. But Oak had found himself so occupied, and was full of so many cares relative to those portions of Boldwood's flocks that were not disposed of, that Bathsheba, without telling Oak or anybody, resolved to drive home herself, as she had many times done from Casterbridge Market, and trust to her good angel for performing the journey unmolested. But having fallen in with Farmer Boldwood accidentally, on her part at least, at the refreshment tent, she found it impossible to refuse his offer to ride on horseback beside her as escort. It had grown twilight before she was aware, but Boldwood assured her that there was no cause for uneasiness as the moon would be up in half an hour. Immediately after the incident, in the tent, she had risen to go, now absolutely alarmed and really grateful for her old lover's protection, though regretting Gabriel's absence, whose company she would have much preferred, as being more proper, as well as more pleasant since he was her own managing man and servant. This, however, could not be helped. She would not, on any consideration, treat Boldwood harshly, having once already ill-used him, and the moon having risen, and the gig being ready, she drove across the hill-top in the wending ways which led downwards, to oblivious obscurity, as it seemed, for the moon and the hill it flooded with light were in appearance on a level, the rest of the world lying as a vast shady concave between them. Boldwood mounted his horse, and followed in close attendance behind. Thus they descended into the lowlands, and the sounds of those left on the hill came like voices from the sky, and the lights were as those of a camp in heaven. They soon passed the merry stragglers in the immediate vicinity of the hill, traversed Kingsbere, and got upon the high road. The keen instincts of Bathsheba had perceived that the farmer's staunch devotion to herself was still undiminished, and she sympathised deeply. The sight had quite depressed her this evening, had reminded her of her folly. She wished anew, as she had wished many months ago, for some means of making reparation for her fault. Hence her pity for the man who so persistently loved on to his own injury and permanent gloom had betrayed Bathsheba into an injudicious considerateness of manner which appeared almost like tenderness, and gave new vigour to the exquisite dream of Jacob's seven years' service in poor Boldwood's mind. He found an excuse for advancing from his position in the rear, and rode close by her side. They had gone two or three miles in the moonlight, speaking desultorily across the wheel of her gig concerning the fair, farming, Oak's usefulness to them both, and other indifferent subjects, when Boldwood said suddenly and simply, "'Mrs. Troy!' you will marry again some day?' This point-blank query unmistakably confused her, 
and it was not till a minute or more had elapsed that she said, "'I have not seriously thought of any such subject.' "'I quite understand that. Yet your late husband has been dead nearly one year, and—you forget that his death was never absolutely proved, and may not have taken place, so that I may not be really a widow,' she said, catching at the straw of escape that the fact afforded. "'Not absolutely proved, perhaps, but it was proved circumstantially.' A man saw him drowning, too. No reasonable person has any doubt of his death, nor have you, ma'am, I should imagine. "'I have none now, or I should have acted differently,' she said gently. "'I certainly at first had a strange, unaccountable feeling that he could not have perished, but I have been able to explain that in several ways since. But though I am fully persuaded that I shall see him no more, I am far from thinking of marriage with another. I should be very contemptible to indulge in such a thought.' They were silent now a while, and having struck into an unfrequented track across a common, the creaks of Boldwood's saddle and her gig-springs were all the sounds to be heard. Boldwood ended the pause. "'Do you remember when I carried you fainting in my arms, into the King's Arms in Casterbridge? Every dog has his day. That was mine.' "'I know. I know it all,' she said hurriedly. I, for one, shall never cease regretting that events so fell out as to deny you to me. I, too, am very sorry, she said, and then checked herself. I mean, you know, I am sorry you thought I— I have always this dreary pleasure in thinking over those past times with you, that I was something to you before he was anything, and that you belonged almost to me. But, of course, that's nothing. You never liked me. I did, and respected you, too. Do you now? Yes. Which? How do you mean, which? Do you like me, or do you respect me? I don't know. At least, I cannot tell you. It is difficult for a woman to define her feelings in language which is chiefly made by men to express theirs. My treatment of you was thoughtless, inexcusable, wicked. I shall eternally regret it. If there had been anything I could have done to make amends, I would most gladly have done it. And there was nothing on earth I so longed to do as to repair the error, but that was not possible. Don't blame yourself. You are not so far in the wrong as you suppose. Bathsheba, suppose you had real complete proof that you are what, in fact, you are, a widow. Would you repair the old wrong to me by marrying me? I cannot say. I shouldn't yet, at any rate. But you might, at some future time of your life? Oh, yes. I might at some time. Well, then, do you know that without further proof of any kind you may marry again, in about six years from the present, subject to nobody's objection or blame? Oh, yes, she said quickly. I know all that. But don't talk of it. Seven or six years. Where may we all be by that time? They will soon die by, and it will seem an astonishingly short time to look back upon when they are past, much less than to look forward to now. Yes, yes, I have found that in my own experience. Now listen once more, Boldwood pleaded. If I wait that time, will you marry me? You own that you owe me amends. Let that be your way of making them. But, Mr. Boldwood, six years! Do you want to be the wife of any other man? No, indeed. I mean that I don't like to talk about this matter now. Perhaps it is not proper, and I ought not to allow it. Let us drop it. My husband may be living, as I said. 
Of course, I'll drop the subject if you wish. But propriety has nothing to do with reasons. I am a middle-aged man, willing to protect you for the remainder of our lives. On your side, at least, there is no passion or blamable haste. On mine, perhaps, there is. But I can't help seeing that if you choose from a feeling of pity, and, as you say, a wish to make amends, to make a bargain with me for a far-ahead time, an agreement which will set all things right and make me happy, late though it may be, there is no fault to be found with you as a woman. Hadn't I the first place beside you? Haven't you been almost mine once already? Surely you can say to me as much as this, you will have me back again should circumstances permit. Now pray, speak, O Bathsheba, promise. It is only a little promise, that if you marry again you will marry me. His tone was so excited that she almost feared him at this moment, even whilst she sympathised. It was a simple physical fear, the weak of the strong. There was no emotional aversion or inner repugnance. She said with some distress in her voice, for she remembered vividly his outburst on the Yalbury Road, and shrank from a repetition of his anger. "'I will never marry another man, whilst you wish me to be your wife, whatever comes. But to say more, you have taken me so by surprise.' "'But let it stand in these simple words, that in six years' time you will be my wife. Unexpected accidents will not mention, because those, of course, must be given way to. Now, this time I know you will keep your word. That's why I hesitate to give it. But do give it. Remember the past, and be kind. She breathed, and then said mournfully, Oh, what shall I do? I don't love you, and I much fear that I never shall love you as much as a woman ought to love a husband. If you, sir, know that, and I can yet give you happiness by a mere promise to marry you at the end of six years, if my husband should not come back, it is a great honour to me and if you value such an act of friendship from a woman who doesn't esteem herself as she did and has little love left why i-i will promise consider if i cannot promise soon but soon is perhaps never oh no it is not i mean soon christmas we'll say christmas he said nothing further till he added well i'll say no more to you about it till that time Bathsheba was in a very peculiar state of mind, which showed how entirely the soul is the slave of the body, the ethereal spirit dependent for its quality upon the tangible flesh and blood. It is hardly too much to say that she felt coerced by a force stronger than her own will, not only into the act of promising upon this singularly remote and vague matter, but into the emotion of fancying that she ought to promise. When the weeks intervening between the night of this conversation and Christmas Day began perceptibly to diminish, her anxiety and perplexity increased. One day she was led by an accident into an oddly confidential dialogue with Gabriel about her difficulty. It afforded her a little relief, of a dull and cheerless kind. They were auditing accounts, and something occurred in the course of their labours which led Oak to say, speaking of Boldwood, He'll never forget you, ma'am. Never. Then out came her trouble before she was aware, and she told him how she had again got into the toils, what Boldwood had asked her, and how he was expecting her assent. The most mournful reason of all for my agreeing to it, she said sadly, and the true reason why I think to do so for good or for evil is this. It is a thing I have not breathed to a living soul as yet. 
I believe that if I don't give my word, he'll go out of his mind. Really, do you? said Gabriel gravely. I believe this, she continued with reckless frankness, and heaven knows I say it in a spirit the very reverse of vain, for I am grieved and troubled to my soul about it. I believe I hold that man's future in my hand. His career depends entirely upon my treatment of him. Oh, Gabriel, I tremble at my responsibility, for it is terrible. Well, I think this much, ma'am, as I told you years ago, said Oak, that his life is a total blank whenever he isn't hope free. But I can't suppose. I hope that nothing so dreadful hangs on to it as you fancy. His natural manner has always been dark and strange, you know. But since the case is so sad and odd-like, why don't you give the conditional promise? I think I would. But is it right? Some rash acts of my past life have taught me that a watched woman must have very much circumspection to retain only a very little credit, and I do want and long to be discreet in this. And six years! Why, we may all be in our graves by that time, even if Mr. Troy does not come back again, which he may not impossibly do. Such thoughts give a sort of absurdity to the scheme. Now, isn't it preposterous, Gabriel? However he came to dream of it, I cannot think. But is it wrong? You know, you are older than I. Eight years older, ma'am. Yes, eight years. And is it wrong? Perhaps it would be an uncommon agreement for a man and woman to make. I don't see anything really wrong about it, said Oak, slowly. In fact, the very thing that makes it doubtful if you ought to marry him under any condition, that is, you're not caring about him, for I may suppose. Yes, you may suppose that love is wanting, she said shortly. Love is an utterly bygone, sorry, worn-out, miserable thing with me, for him or anyone else. Well, your want of love seems to me the one thing that takes away harm from such an agreement with him. If wild heat had to do with it, making you long to overcome the awkwardness about your husband's vanishing, it may be wrong, but a cold-hearted agreement to oblige a man seems different somehow. The real sin, ma'am, in my mind, lies in thinking of ever wedding with a man you don't love, honest and true. That I'm willing to pay the penalty of, said Bathsheba firmly. You know, Gabriel, this is what I cannot get off my conscience, that I once seriously injured him in sheer idleness. If I had never played a trick upon him, he would never have wanted to marry me. Oh, if I could only pay some heavy damages and money to him for the harm I did, and so get the sin off my soul that way. Well, there's the debt, which can only be discharged in one way, and I believe I am bound to do it, if it honestly lies in my power, without any consideration of my own future at all. When a rake gambles away his expectations, the fact that it is an inconvenient debt doesn't make him the less liable. I have been a rake, and the single point I ask you is, considering that my own scruples, and the fact that in the eye of the law my husband is only missing, will keep any man from marrying me until seven years have passed, am I free to entertain such an idea, even though tis a sort of penance? For it will be that. I hate the act of marriage under such circumstances, and the class of women I should seem to belong to by doing it. It seems to me that all depends on whether you think, as everyone else do, that your husband is dead. Yes, I've long ceased to doubt that. I well know what would have brought him back, long before this time if he had lived. Well, then, 
In a religious sense you will be as free to think of marrying again as any real widow of one year's standing. But why don't you ask Mr. Thirdly's advice on how to treat Mr. Boldwood? No. When I want a broad-minded opinion for general enlightenment, distinct from special advice, I never go to a man who deals in the subject professionally. So I like the parson's opinion on the law, the lawyer's on doctoring, the doctor's on business, and my businessman's, that is, yours, on morals. And on love? My own. I'm afraid there's a hitch in that argument, said Oak, with a grave smile. She did not reply at once, and then, saying, "'Good evening, Mr. Oak,' went away. She had spoken frankly, and neither asked nor expected any reply from Gabriel more satisfactory than that she had obtained. Yet, in the centermost parts of her complicated heart, there existed at this minute a little pang of disappointment, for a reason she would not allow herself to recognize. Oak had not once wished her free that he might marry her himself. He had not once said, I could wait for you as well as he. That was the insect's sting. Not that she would have listened to any such hypothesis. Oh, no, for wasn't she saying all the time that such thoughts of the future were improper, and wasn't Gabriel far too poor a man to speak sentiment to her? Yet he might have just hinted about that old love of his, and asked, in a playful off-hand way, if he might speak of it. It would have seemed pretty and sweet, if no more and then she would have shown how kind and inoffensive a woman's no can sometimes be. But to give such cool advice, the very advice she had asked for, it ruffled our heroine all the afternoon. End of chapter 51「You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.